Yeah, I'm, I'm a member of the Horny Toad chapter of the Frogs of America. Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places a dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 244, is recorded live June 4th, 2015. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the state of Michigan, where we are in the heart of scuba diving season. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. Glad to be here. And we also have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I am feeling like a frog. So so how's a frog feel? Uh, forgetful, retired, overweight, and grumpy. Okay. <laughs> and leapy. <laughs> other, than, other than the retired bit, that sounded a lot like me. And I'd like to thank uh, our guests in the chat room tonight. We had a few show up, and I got started late, so if you perused at exactly quarter to nine there wasn't a chat room available so i apologize for that but we have dave Toneman having a chance to join us and we have moulin x rodney. coming in rodney That's rodney right rodney i think so i'm so bad at i stuff haven't like been that. in the chat room for so long i keep an eye on it i ignore it and then i abuse them so but uh, we have sent out the show notes and also if i can remember we'll paste the show notes into the chat room we have a full news week this week, so we're going to go ahead and get started right in it. This first one really isn't scuba diving, but since it had scuba diving in the name, I thought we would go ahead and talk about it. And uh, a worker died, and the term they used was scuba diving, in a fruit storage unit. This one's out of the UK. And what appears to have happened, in, and Mac, you correct me if I'm wrong, but it was a double fatality inside this fruit storage unit. And I think what happened is uh, a lot of times to extend a life of fruit, they'll store the fruit in these storage units and they deprive the unit of oxygen. They they beef up the nitrogen. Oh, what the heck? <clears throat> did you guys get the same thing I did? I don't know. What did you get? I, I'm getting a message from our sponsor. Okay, I'm not getting a message. Message. I can't get to. I can't get. I can't get to the freaking article again. Well, I can take care of it on for you. Yeah, if you can. A young farm worker died after being asked to, quote, scuba dive for prize-winning apples in an oxygen-deprived storage unit, a court heard. Ashley Clark, 24, who grew up in Markway, Close, Emsworth, okay, UK, and played for a South Sea Nomads rugby club, was found unconscious on top of crates of apples in a storage facility along with his colleague, Scott Kane, 23, on February 18, 2013. Andrew Slocker, 57, is accused of manslaughter of the two workers at the Blackmore Estate in Lys, ignoring health and safety regulations through encouraging his staff to use the dangerous procedure. Mark Dennis, QC, prosecuting, told Winchester Crown Court that Stocker, on holiday in the Maldives at the time, had instructed McCain to gather the sample fruit while he was away to be entered in the Marden Fruit Show held twice a year in Kent. 
He said that Stalker enjoyed the kudos of winning at the event. He explained that Stalker engaged in a practice nicknamed scuba diving, which involves staff entering the storage units through a hatch in the roof and holding their breath while they ducked inside in the cramped conditions to retrieve food samples. Mr. Dennis said the air in the sealed unit had oxygen levels reduced to 1% for long-term preservation of the fruit, and persons would die immediately after they ran out of breath while in the facility. That's it. Ah, so what they're talking about scuba diving really should be called called free diving then. So they would hold their breath, go in the unit, grab some apples, come back out, take a breath. And then so if you have two of them, what happened is the first guy went in, passed out, and then his buddy, not willing to leave him in there to die, went in after him and also became a fatality. Yep. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how they, uh, or what they actually did for this. since This was 2013. So it'd be interesting if we can find, uh, you know, what the proceedings actually, what they did with the proceedings. Yeah. Well, I, I know this is, this is a new write-up as of this yeah. today. So I, I think it's just going to trial. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, he's accused of manslaughter. Yeah. So they're, they're saying that there were procedures. So obviously that, uh, scuba diving, as I said, was not authorized procedure for grabbing apples. My understanding that was the procedure. Oh, that is that was an approved that procedure. Was the procedure, yeah. Yeah, hold your breath, duck in, and grab it. Just don't breathe. Huh. Now, how would that have been? Not that we're advocating doing this, but how would a hooker rig from outside have worked? Hooker would have been fine. Yeah. Of course, they probably didn't want you exhaling, exhaling in the unit because you'd affect their the fruit preservation. Yeah, yeah, as opposed to being dead. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that's an advantage. No. No, being dead is rarely an advantage. <laughs> It's one of those items, though, part of it is, you know, how, how uh, I don't want to say stupid, do you have to be to do that, but. Well, I mean, how many times had they done it do before? It, get away. Yeah. Now, looking at the kid, it doesn't look like, he, he looked really young yeah. in that photo. But, yeah, it's going to go to court, so he's, I mean, the kid paid the ultimate price. Yeah. Bad driving habits here. Well, it's one of those items, you know, the boss said to do sense. this. People must be doing it. Therefore, I'll go ahead. Hold and on, do it. hold on, just a second. Car, they can affect your fuel efficiency and I'm trying to. So drive smart oh, and breathe easy. Crap! These freaking commercials. Oh, I. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start getting the full articles, pasting them into the notes, and forget trying to get to these websites while we're on the air. They are just oh, getting so up. obnoxious. Yeah, the auto starting the videos. Everybody's probably getting tired of me whining about it, but. It's just annoying. And they don't make anything on the videos either. Okay. So this next one up is a scuba Steve rescued after being thrown into the river. And, uh, well, that's a common term. Uh, I know a lot of people are named scuba Steve. In this case, it was a cat. The cat was tossed from the uh, barge off Truman Road. It was left hanging for his dear life high above water. Bridge. Not a barge, a bridge. Bridge. Bridge, barge. Just a couple letters different. <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> you want me to write some procedures <laughs> jump off the barge actually the barge sounds better no the the cat was tossed off a bridge uh we had a concerned citizen come into our building he saw the cat go flying out of a vehicle's window then somebody tossed it straight out of that window into the into five feet of water this according to uh dina miller of jackson county animal control animal control Miller said she went to the bridge but discovered she needed some help to rescue the two-year-old cat. I started to step in the river and realized it was a lot deeper than I was thinking. She called the fire department. Crews were able to rescue the cat. 
earned the nickname Scuba Steve. You'd think after something like that, he'd be pretty scared. He just crawled right out of the net and into our arms. She said that people should know better than throwing a cat into the water. The key item is if you did that, if they're in a burlap bag, you wouldn't have got the problem. Oh, is that a tip? Do you have to put rocks in the bag too, Mac, or not? It's best. It's best. Wow. So if you've got a complaint about that, here's Mac's email address. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, Matt. Uh, Now, this this one's a, a, a similar situation, except this was a boy. And they're surprised at the amount of time that he was able to be underwater. He survived. This was uh, 42 minutes. The article in Life Science. A teenager in Italy uh, survived 42 minutes underwater, according to news reports. A 14-year-old boy identified only as Michael by the Italian newspaper Milan Chronicle reportedly dove off a bridge in the canal with some friends last month and never resurfaced. His foot became caught in something underwater, and it took firefighters and other first responders nearly an hour to free him from the depths. Though Michael remained on life support for an entire month, he recently woke up and seems to be doing fine. I think Optum Nord seems to be. Yeah, they're calling... Didn't say, the temp- didn't say the temperature of the water, did it? No, no, they didn't. And typically when we see that here in the States, it's usually cold water, and it's usually younger than 14. 14, once you start hitting puberty... You lose that reflex, and I can't remember the the name of it right now. Mammalian diving reflex. Thank you. Mammalian diving reflex. That's it, exactly. Uh, And you could have babies who have been submerged for over an hour who have recovered with no signs. So, uh, But, yeah, it's it's also normally colder water. Oh, That section they had in there on the Journal of Resuscitation found that submersion time serves as a predicator of survival for near drownings. Average amount of time spent underwater by the 61 patients in the study was 10 minutes. Those who spent less than five minutes had the least neurolog- neurological, neurological, good, easy for you to say, disability yeah. after the accident. The victims who didn't survive spent an average of 16 or greater. Yeah, so he, he had a month. Uh, it sounded like there's a while there where he wasn't awake. I, I wonder if they put him in that, that coma part, they, you know, like they do oh, something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they intentionally put you in a coma, and there's a lot of conditions where that actually helps. Yeah, I like the part at the end of it where they say medical experts agree that intentionally holding your breath underwater for extended periods of time is a dangerous activity. Yeah. Is is that kind of like warning coffee may be hot? I think so. <laughs> they're, they're afraid if we don't tell you don't hold your breath or trap yourself underwater for 42 minutes, then they're going to have a problem. Well, they didn't tell me I couldn't do that. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, my 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 kid was fine until he listened to that podcast, and they told him to hold his breath. <laughs> yeah, do not hold your breath underwater. Darren said. No, I did not say. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Mac's email address. The comments <laughs> expressed by Darren on this program are do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mac and Jim. Oh hey, boy, go. this is getting rough. Wales launches a 25 million pound underwater kite turbine scheme. And I have to say that sounds awful heavy. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. <laughs> so 25 million pounds. What's that in U.S.? That's got to be, what, 30, almost $40 million. Uh, it's a a unique, lot of money. A unique renewable energy scheme involving underwater kite turbines is being launched off the course 
course. Coast of North Wales, 20 turbines will be anchored off Anglesey, and when fully operational, should generate enough electricity to power about 8,000 homes. Initially, 30 jobs will be created, but the system works well. The Swedish company behind it, Manesto, believes hundreds more could follow. So if you look at it, it looks more, let's see, it says it does like a figure eight trajectory, kind of like when you have a kite that just kind of goes nuts and you can't quite get it to go. So it's a, it's like a surfboard, which is acting as a wing with a turbine underneath and the cable to the bottom. Welsh government is keen to promote the wave and tidal energy to find ways of bringing skilled jobs to places like Anglesey. Angel, is that Anglesey? Anglesey. A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Uh, Welsh First Minister Carwin Jones, which I think it's unusual to have a Welsh name I can read, this will not only help create greener, more efficient sources of energy, but also create jobs and vital opportunities for growth in North Wales. Manesto has been testing a kite turbine system in uh, Strangford Lock in Northern Ireland. It is chosen for the permanent Welsh site, a southern corner of the stretch of water called the Holly, Hollyhead Deep. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that. Uh, normally, I, I don't like some of these ideas because it seems like it would get in the way of scuba diving, but this one doesn't look too bad. Yeah, the density of those would be interesting. I don't think you'd want to have a submersible go cruising through there at any time. No, you you might not. I wonder if you could hear it. That'd be like a, a sci-fi movie, a little horror movie. You could hear the, the prop whining as you got closer. Did you see the pictorials under that? It sort of looks like, why wouldn't you use the wind turbine aspect like they're showing in the pictorial? That way, a tin place, you know exactly where everything is. You're not getting that arc. I'm not... Yeah, I'm not sure why. Yeah, I've seen I've I've seen that uh, some are using the props. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm guessing that it has to do with cost and maintenance. Yeah, we think it's tough to fix something above water. Imagine underneath water. I wonder how the voltage is. What kind of current? What kind of power do they have spliced in? That would be quite interesting to know that. Yeah, you know, what's the maintenance duty cycle of it? Yeah, how do they connect the power to that turbine? And if one went bad, how would you? Splicing a new one could be interesting. And here, closer to home, at least for us, is a panelist study proposals for Great Lake fish farming. This one's in the Detroit Free Press. Uh, they're saying that in Lansing, a panel of experts will study proposals to allow fish farming in Michigan's Great Lakes waters. Department of Environmental Quality officials said that March they heard from two operators interested in raising rainbow trout in netted enclosures in Lake Michigan and Huron. They would take fish from small hatcheries and raise them large enough for the consumer food market. The part of the DEQ director, Dan Wyatt, said Tuesday the proposal raises questions about protecting the lakes, state agencies preparing recommendations for Governor Rick Schneider. Newly appointed panel will take public comments later this month. Among members are scientists with uh, the NOAA Great Lakes Ecology Laboratory in Ann Arbor, the Great Lakes Fishery Commission, Michigan Sea Grant, and others to cheer Chairman is Roy Stein, Professor Emeritus at Ohio State University. So what I'm imagining that they're talking about doing is these netted enclosures that would float, and then you would raise trout in them. And I've wondered about that. I thought that would be an interesting proposal, something to do out there. So the concerns have to be waste, but you've already got fish in the water, and you've got zebra mussels out there. There's a number there. of places that actually raise them in big big tanks, swimming mm-hmm. pools. Yeah. There's a, a nice outfit like that in uh, Goshen, Indiana. Yeah. Well, I looked at doing that. I've, I've played around with uh, aquaculture and uh, aqua farming, 
and uh, the challenge, especially with rainbow trout, is is having enough water, and it has to be fairly cold. There, the uh, you need a lot of fast moving, cooler water. So I'm, there could be times of the year where it could be warm in netted enclosures. Now maybe they can lower them down deeper. I'd like to see how some of these operations work. Yeah, because once you start getting a consistent output from your farming or your tanks, then you get clients who will buy it from you all the time because it's like fresh. Oh yeah. Well, the one thing we're doing is we're over we're over fishing the ocean. So if you're providing the habitat, you're using the water and. You know, people have to understand the Great Lakes are a little bit different than, you know, the oceans. Those are, I hate saying largely dead spaces, but there's there's not a lot of life uh, out there in the deep. Now, on the bottom, it usually looks more like a desert. And the only time we see stuff is on the shipwrecks. Pretty much. So I think the Great Lakes could support a substantial amount. And it's recyclable. You know, all that water, you're not wasting it. It's It's being used. And I'm sure the zebra mussels are going to be happy. <laughs> any 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 waste the fish give off they're they're gonna do some processing and then dragon of the sea a 13 foot oar fish surfaces in the island off the los angeles coast while surveying california beaches on monday two catalina island cons- conservancy con- conservancy researchers came across an unusual site the 13 foot oar fish the fish one of the rarest and largest bony fish typically is, lives at depths 500 to 3,000 feet below the ocean surface uh, by the time Tyler Dvorak and Amy Cantalello came across the silver oarfish with distinctive red mane, it was dead because the oarfish preferred environment. Humans rarely get to see them at all, dead or alive. In 2013, an even larger oarfish was found on the same island. Oarfish can grow over 20 feet. They said these fish are rare. Uh, the island has been home to two such incidents. Researchers are unsure why they're attracted to Catalina which is uh, just off the coast of Los Angeles. Uh, Mac McLean, Director of Communications for the Conservatory, uh, chalks up to a coincidence. It's being studied, so if there's any other reason, that will pop up. So I wonder what its natural predator is. I don't know what an oarfish eats. I mean, they're a bony fish. They look, well, that, would they be like a sturgeon-like? Well, it seems like if you could get a good you know, strip out of that one, uh, you know, a fish steak, you could put that on those subway buns, the big ones. Oh, yeah. You could have one steak that would, yeah, you could have an eight-foot sub, like a sushi sub. I would probably freak out if I saw something like that near me in my dark waters. (laughs) Yeah, they they actually eat scuba divers. I think that's what's on the menu. But we're back now, and I was interrupting you, Max, so what were you trying to say? (laughs) Well, with my attention span, I don't remember, actually. Something about, were we talking about fish uh, on on Subway buns or something? Well, you know, I'd make a heck of a fish sandwich. You know, if you could just fillet that one section right there, that'd be a heck of a big sub sandwich. Yeah, a little, little sushi. Uh, what do you need? A little wasabi to go with it. <laughs> and then hopefully making me some money because I own stock in this company. Tampa Odyssey Marine cites potential gold find in the North Atlantic shipwrecks. The treasure hunting group Odyssey Marine Exploration Incorporated said Tuesday it is exploring five 20th century shipwrecks in the North Atlantic and may have significant cargoes of gold and silver. Odyssey stock has been battered in recent months by bad publicity and short seller pressure, rose more than 11% in trading Tuesday and close to 55 cents per share. The Deep Ocean Exploration Company said all shipwrecks have been located and Odyssey Marine Operations Team is gathering data on each wreck using such techniques as multi-beam surveys, sub-bottling, sub-bottling, 
Here, have another drink. Subbottoming imaging, virtual inspections with a remotely operated vehicle. The project dubbed Olympus is operating out of the home port of Cork in Ireland, which is where they did the, the, the they've used that port for a few years now. Targeting multiple shipwreck targets, believing to be carrying bullion and, and what is bullion and spice? Sp- oh, spice? It's, uh, species? Bullion and species. Must be some rare mineral term. But for Minter, I thought we were in Dune. <laughs> you know, the spice must flow. Uh, located in relatively compact geographic area allows them to, allows us to spread risk and recovery expense over the whole project. This is, uh, According to CEO Mark Gordon, the approach also allows us to include other shipwrecks that might not be as economically feasible on a standalone basis. Makes you wonder what they are. And I know they've done some video programs, so we can look forward to, uh, if it is any good discoveries, we'll get to see They consider it a uh, penny stock? Not when I bought it. <laughs> but they're, they're, I think they're running about 50 cents now. Uh, you know, their, their peak is probably in... Yeah, it's best to go out to the investment sites if you want to know for sure. But they've been as high as two, like two fifty, two sixty. But they've been really doing bad the last year and a half. One of the things that hurt them is they had that gold shipwreck that Spain claimed and got everything back. You know, no reimbursement for any of your time, effort, storage fees. So sorry, you stole it. So that that took a dent out of their wallet. And then uh, let's see what was the other one. Um, I mean, it is treasure hunting, so it's fairly high risk. It will be a penny. Well, was it 10, 10 straight annual losses? Yes. Uh, the, yeah, out of 12 years. Or is it 21 years? Yeah. So it's a 21-year-old salvage company. Yeah. They've got a lot of inventory that instead of just melting down and selling, they try to sell as collectibles. So they've got coins and things. If you go to their website, you can go and buy stuff that was on shipwrecks. But it doesn't bring a lot. I think their big key came when they got that uh, Central America wreck because that's when they got that 15,000 and, you know, gold and silver coins plus mm-hmm. those gold bars. That's what got people interested into it. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. I hope they do well. I own enough just to say I, I do it. But if it goes to zero, I'm still okay. Don't want it to, but it's fun. And then we have another discovery. And this one I think has been out for a while. This is uh a, what they're now claiming to be a slave ship. Wreck of a 221-year-old slave ship is confirmed off South Africa. A, uh, it was the San Jose Parquet de Africa, a Portuguese slave ship that was lost in 1794 off the coast of Cape Town, South Africa, but only now, after years of painstaking work, they have finally confirmed it. Drawing on archival records from Portugal, diagnostic tests from materials gathered during dives at the wreck site, and even a captain's account of the ship, team of researchers from the group called the Slave Wrecks Project has verified that the San Jose's deadly end, remnants from the ship, which picked up slaves from Mozambique and transported them to Brazil, will be loaned to Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture for an exhibit set to open next year called Slavery and Freedom. The discovery is significant because it has never been archaeological documentation of a vessel that foundered and was lost while carrying a cargo of enslaved persons. I sent you a link mm-hmm. that has uh, pictures of some of their work they're doing. Okay, I'll take a look at that. Uh, one one way they identified it as a sl- uh, slave ship is they said that slave ships 
would carry ballast. Oh, that's what you're seeing. That's what your photos are showing too. Those bars. But then there's a video I think below that one, yeah. the iron bars. Yeah. It doesn't look like it's a deep wreck. No, it was fairly shallow, and I think it had been discovered for a while. But they just kind of go, oh, hum, hum. no big deal. Oh yeah, it was discovered in eight, uh, 1980 in the 1980s. Yeah, but now that they've done a little bit more work on it and identified as a slave ship, it, it's a little bit more interesting. Oh, and they have a nice timeline. Yeah, I like your article better than the one I had. So, I like yeah. the pictures where it came from Mozambique and then uh, shipwrecked off of Cape Town, South Africa. Yeah, so it was coming from Mozambique and heading all over, uh, heading over to Brazil. So in 2010, they started uncovering documents that were making them think it was a slave ship. So then based on those documents, they went back, did some diving uh, to come up with uh, remnants. They said no human remains have been found at the shipwreck site. Uh, they're expecting that. Um, well, see, they had a, let me see if I go back to my original article. It seems like they had something talking about a letter from the, the captain who had described it. I can't find it now. But it's you, interesting that when you read that article that you had, the original one, Mm-hmm. Then you go down to the comments afterwards, how everybody gets on tangents really quick on different items. Yeah. Yeah, what they're interested in, what they want to talk about. But I'm, I'm looking at that first picture that you see that dredge they got. It looks like a suction dredge. Oh, yeah. Ain't no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, that or a big twisty straw. Actually, what that one does look like, though, is a PVC pipe with it exhausting overboard because it looks too straight to be corrugated. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, nice thing about a PVC pipe is it it holds its shape. Yeah. And that doesn't, I'm looking at the rocks in the background and what appears to be either seaweed or kelp or something floating by. So it doesn't seem like that's really, really deep at all. No, it it doesn't look deep. And I want to say somewhere I read that it was like 30, 40 feet. Because it it, it hit a reef, I think is what happened. Hit a reef sank. And most people on the shipwreck got off okay. And then one of the assumptions in one of the articles I read is they assume that all the slaves are resold and shipped off anyway what are they going to find you think what what are they really going to find on the shipwreck that help people i don't think i don't think anything i think it's just a little bit of you know they've identified it as a slave ship so people can be able to look at the artifacts and realize the proximity and and that's what it is it's just more symbolic than anything else yeah some people say you'd have shackles and stuff but they didn't because they were so crowded down in the holes they didn't need that kind of restraint items. Yeah, what are you so going to do, would, jump off the ship? Say again, what? What are they going to do, jump off the ship? Well, if they're in the holes, they're not going to get too far yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah, I think shackles, uh, and, and I'm not an expert. I'll, I'll, you can read plenty on it. It, it, it. It's not an undocumented time. There's a lot of stories, firsthand accounts of slave ships. There's a famous drawing that I, you know, they, I always remember seeing, which is probably a lot n- nicer than what it really was. And then Patty... Uh, kind of in the gear section, Patty on their website had a brief history of recreational scuba diving regulators. And so they, they, they talk about how the regulator was, a, was, uh, the original concept was a demand valve created in 1860, first developed for use in smoky rooms and poisonous mines. Demand valve wasn't used underwater until, uh, French Navy Lieutenant Augustus. Yeah, we're just going to go with that. Together, we made two regulators for divers to use underwater with surface-supplied air, which just inspired diving rigs in the Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, which was published in 1870. So from 1860 to 1870 seems to be the where it really took off or got started. 
that took off. Uh, then 80 years later, Jacques Cousteau and Emily Gargan uh, butted up to make the first, buddied up to make the first scuba system. Uh, compressed air cylinders have been developed prior to 1943, and those were free-flowed and hand-controlled. In 1943, the Aqualung system was the first practical system to use demand valves to deliver a diver compressed air from a cylinder, groundbreaking development, single-stage double-hose scuba sets placed the demand valve and exhaust valve behind the head. In 1851, E.R. Cross invented the sports diver, which is said to be the first spot in modern two-stage single-hose regulator. About the same time in Australia, uh, Ted Eldred designed a similar system called the Porpoise. People still debate which of these two credit for the single-hose regulator. Many companies started independently producing single-hose regulators. Uh, Sam L. Koch, uh, in partnership with Sportsways, made the water lung in 1858, became the first popular single-hose regulator. In 1858, engineers from Sherwood Manufacturing modified piston regulators for underwater. Several other manufacturers adopted piston designs over the other widely used diaphragm design. It's almost like saying, who really did fly the first airplane? Right. Every country has their own first. Yeah, you have your own first, and you had people who were simultaneously doing it. And I'm sure there's people who had working rigs who never built them for anybody else, so they don't get credit. Well, if you went through the history for that also, you'll notice that the demand valve was actually invented in 1838 in France. It was patented, and the patent was filed for a twin-hose demand regulator. The diver was provided air through pipes from the surface. It was uh, demonstrated, investigated by the Committee of the French Academy of Sciences, and uh, patented. And what year was that? November 14, 1838. So 1838. So yes. it worked. And then they said it was forgotten. In the next few years, other workable demand valves were not invented until 1860, which is where this one came in. Okay. Hmm. But it'd be interesting to look on a Russian site to see when they invented it. Yes. <laughs> and Chinese. True. Well, because then, Chinese is doing salvage. So were the Egyptians years and years, you know, well, before that, you think about it. Well, and, and they're, here we're just talking about the regulator. Yeah. You also got the original rebreathers and scrubbers. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, diving bells and other items. And generally there wasn't a brand new, oh, my God, I'm going to make this. It's a bastardization of something that existed already. And regulators in different formats for surface work have existed for a long time. It's just the application or use underwater like this. Now, anybody know when, because you had to have other valve systems, like you've got torches, you know, oxyacetylene. Yeah. When when did those start to become? You had carbide, which was largely used. Uh, you know, maybe the, I don't know how much of a regulator system they would have had. But, you know, Patty, this is a nice little synopsis. teaser. Yeah, nice little synopsis, and it kind of gets you kind of wondering. You know, there has to be a, a good authoritative source. It's probably somebody's got a doctorate paper on it. It'd be interesting to read. And then how about some mini robots? Looks like the quadcopter swarm. Yeah. Coco Row underwater mini robot school like fish and share knowledge. In April 2011, a European Union Coco Row collective cognitive robot research consortium have been developing three varieties of autonomous underwater robots that school together like fish. By doing so, the little bots can share and learn from each other's knowledge of their environment, acting as a collective cognitive system that's smarter than any one of the individual parts. 
The robots communicate with each other via built-in flashing LEDs using onboard electronics such as computer vision systems, compasses, and accelerometers to find their way around the aquatic environment. Using a logarithm inspired by clustering behavior for bees, not to fish, they can seek out others of their kind and then settle together around one central base location, becoming aware of the growing size of their group as more robots arrive. Individuals can then leave the cluster to go on their own mission, subsequently returning to share their findings with the group. In one experiment, groups of two types of robots, Jeff robots and Lily robots, were put in a pool to simulate crashed airplane, which was actually a group of magnets used to simulate the plane's electromagnetic field. While the Lily robots patrolled the surface, the Jeffs went deeper. One of the Jeff robots located the magnets. It used the LEDs to signal the other Jeffs, which responded by gathering around it over the wreckage. The Lily robots observed the behavior from above and responded by forming a cluster on the surface in the same location. Robots also been tested in open water in Italy, where they reportedly were able to cluster and patrol despite the waves, current, and corrosive salt water. I want these robots to find shipwrecks. Because that's what they're saying when they said the simulated airplane is that they were looking, thinking that it might be they were trying to simulate discovery of an airplane. Interesting product. A lot of parallel between the aviation and submersibles, aren't there? Oh, huge amounts. And the thing about this is that when these robot overlords take over the Earth, uh, they're going to be very efficient. You've always heard those things about artificial intelligence. Yeah, everybody's warning about it. Because they'll only do what's best for us. Yes, of course. (laughs) And they'll be back. Well, we're lucky because our power grid isn't that reliable. (laughs) But they'll make it reliable for us. Ah, they'll they'll put it together. But yeah, I I like that idea. I've I I think that you're going to get used that. The original purpose for that is well, like what these were doing was information collecting because you can do the same thing for farmers for fields. You spread out tiny robots or sensors or moats. And you let them collect the information, and they can report back and uh, you know share information and aggregate data. Uh, Consumer Reports discovered something interesting when they were testing uh, Tesla cars, and I, I I understand that Tesla has what they call an insane mode, uh, which just is like peak performance. Who cares about the the distance? Uh, Consumer Report purchased one of the one hundred twenty seven thousand dollar Teslas, and discovered it has an underwater mode. Still there. Yeah, I'm still here. I'm just, I'm just trying to think of what, that's where they go. Uh, Tesla also delights with a feature that appears on its center screen and its instrument panel. There are other drivers see images of what's shown going in the car. If you open a door, the image shows the car with an open door. The lights are on. The image of the car is activated. If you press the T symbol, you can enter a service technician's code. This is where you get silly. If you put 007 on the screen, the image turns into a sports car that turned into a submarine. The Lotus T Sprint from Roger Moore as James Bond dove off the dock to escape a helicopter and a spy who loved me. Tesla CEO Elon Musk has long had fascination with a submersible car. He bought the movie prop for $989,000 in an auction. Hmm. So what do you think? You think there's going to, the, the Tesla's going to go underwater? Who's going to buy one at that kind of price? And if you bought one at that kind of price, would you take it underwater? I think there's crazy people. If you, can, I, you know, how many K250s could you build? When you say K250, you mean the that's a that's a submarine you can build. You got a K250 and a K350. Oh, how many of those can you build for 127 thousand? Yeah, probably a few. They don't look quite as cool as that car, but uh, I think they'd be more functional for what we want to do. It would it would definitely be cool though. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I wouldn't picture myself driving a car out in the Lake Michigan. <laughs> okay, well, that does it for scuba in the news. Let's see. We had somebody uh, last week write us and want to know if we had any suggestions. They said, "Do you know of any list of lost shipwrecks in Lake Erie?" I just, I'm just live. Uh, excuse me. I live just south of Cleveland, and I'm hearing you guys talk week after week about looking and finding shipwrecks. He was, says, I want in on the adventure. Do you guys know of any lists? Uh, I know in Michigan we have the uh, the preserves put together list of, of stuff that's in divable depths. Or something. And you know, which lake or which lake? Erie. He's looking for Lake Erie. There's the uh, that map, the shipwreck map, which would give it to him. Or he could go <laughs> to the... Uh, who is our friend uh, who keeps could... all the recording for all the wrecks, Jim? If you're going to look for shipwrecks, where do you go on the net? Oh, is that Boat Nerd? Boat Nerd or Brandon Ballard's? Ballard. Brandon Ballard's. And what's the other one who has a record of majority yeah. of uh, wrecks? My mind has just skipped over that name right this second. You and me both. You know what talking. Let me go look. Okay. So while he's looking, we also had somebody else who I was chatting with last night on Twitter. Uh, who said that they, he had enjoyed the show. He was in the, the UK. And he was asking if, uh, for, first thing he wanted to know is, what was the story behind the two boys on the photo of the cover art? I don't know if you know the answer, Mac. Okay, r- repeat to me what you're asking. He wanted to know the story behind it. If you look at the cover art for the podcast, it's two boys standing in oh. toy scuba gear. Okay. And he wanted to know what the story was behind it. And I had to tell him, that it was just because I thought the picture was cool. <laughs> I liked it. Uh, you know, I liked the fact that it was two young kids, uh, you know, dreaming and playing about going underwater, and that's that's really what the podcast was about, was sharing that excitement. Um, okay, I found it. Did you? Okay. It's uh, David Swayze, S-W-A-Y-Z-E. Thank you. And if you go to www.bail.com, lod.com backslash shipwrecks backslash Swayze S-W-A-Y-Z-E that'll get you into the the database. Brendan Ballad probably pronouncing it wrong I've talked with him a few times but he's uh, he's got a lot of Great Lakes shipwrecks uh, another opportunity is Bowling Green State University and we can uh, not far that. From, it's in uh, Bowling Green, Ohio uh, they've got a fantastic research library up there where you can spend, you could easily spend weeks there and still not cover it all. And what's nice about that is their archivists uh, and the people in the library are so helpful. You kind of tell them what you're looking for and they'll bring you lists and talk to you a little bit and search for stuff for you and great helps. And then Dave, who's down in Ohio. Uh, he's, he's, boy, he's listed a few of them. Uh, one's ohioshipwrecks.org. One's eerierecks.com forward slash eerierecks. Uh, alchemic, which is www.alchemic.com forward slash shipwrecks.html. And we'll try and put these in the show notes when I get the show notes up. Uh, Ohio Mass, www.ohiomast.org. And then www.cluesshipwrecks.org. 
And he's got www.ship-rex.net, shipwrex forward slash index dot JSP. So we'll have to, we'll, we'll have to com- compile those and I'll have to remember where they are because I don't have the notes right now. But those are some sites. So we'll put those together. And who is the young lady for the Mud Club who happens to work for MAST, the Maritime Archaeological Survey Team? Uh, you mean uh, Mallory? Yes, sir. They just did some recent leakery shipwreck research. I'm just looking at the uh, site right now. Yeah, Mallory, I think, uh, I, I don't want to slaughter her name. I think it's Hass. Hess? I just say Mallory. <laughs> Mallory. <laughs> yeah, so she, she is a trained and experienced underwater archaeologist. And she has done diving all over the world. I'd like to have, love to have her on if she ever gets wind of it. She's always busy again. Dave says he's lost audio. I'm still showing that we're sending audio. I can still hear you on Skype. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 still going. Actually, I think Mallory's got a uh, yard sale going on this weekend. Yes, she does. So go down and buy some of her stuff, and and then you can talk shipwrecks with her. And I think she has an open bar this time too. I hear. (laughs) She shows. Okay, we're looking at Facebook. We're friends with Mallory, and yeah, it does look like she's got a bar there. She's got some cool antiques. I've seen her a few times. I just posted to you in Skype if you want to put somewhere else that Ohio history, the one they're talking about, Mast mm-hmm. and Lake Erie. Okay. Yeah, we'll do that. Ask and it shall be given. Okay. And then, oh. and then, 100 uh, bucks, Mac. 100 bucks for what? Well, he said, ask and it shall be given. Oh. In this case, we were helping the guy out and we were able to help somebody out. We could take donations from your your dive bus that you were trying to hawk on us. Yeah, it, it's only sixty thousand right now, but you know it's probably going to go higher before it closes. I don't know. I think we should go to Mallory's yard sale. I mean, she's serving drinks. That seems like a good. Uh, it's a long that, drive. Though. Yeah. <laughs> hey, as much as we're going to spend on gas, we go down to the local tavern. You know. Yeah. Yeah, but Mallory's not there. Well, after a couple, you probably wouldn't care. (laughs) (laughs) You could just cry in your beer then. We need need to get back with Mallory do some more diving. That was fun last time. Or she needs to come up and do more diving with us. She can come up anytime she wants. Absolutely. Okay. And then uh, we had somebody on Twitter who I was talking to who wanted to know how we got started in diving, what inspired us, and what was the beginning. So just kind of a little mini recap, and we'll start with Mac. How did I start? I started wondering how far down I could go with a snorkel, and from there I figured, I I found out real quick, not too damn far, and that's when I started with the bicycle pumps, pumping air down a full-face fighter mask just to see if I could do it. So how deep could you pump with a bicycle pump down a full-face fire mask? Well, we learned real quick that I can't pump with a big barrel uh, pump with a long Tigon-type hose on it. And you could get enough air, but he had to pump a lot. So we found out that if you took a big container and and pumped into that, you know, a pressure container. Uh-huh. So now I got some volume. So every time I took a breath, I didn't out-breathe the pump. Ah. That was really good because then you could actually get down to the bottom of the pool at 15 feet. Nice. So, so kind of a it's kind of a manual hooker rig. Yeah, yeah. Now, is there anything that inspired you, or is it just mostly out of play and experimentation? I always liked the water, and you figure between that and Mike Nelson, come on, yeah, who want to go down there and play? 
Yeah, Mike Mike Nelson. For those of us who are too young, that would be uh, Sea Hunt. Sea Hunt. I was going to say Sea Quest, but that's something else. So Sea Hunt. Trying to look at some of the old movies. Right. So so what? Without telling us your age, what year was that? <laughs> who? <laughs> when, 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 when you were first playing in the pool? God. 1960, maybe? 1960. Now, at what point did you start making the helmets out of the... That same year. That same year. That same year. Military brat. And that's when we, we went from that to the full fit, you know, the fire mask. Uh-huh. And that would work. Uh, and then from that, it's like, let's put something over the head. Because that's what you see. And that, you know, you just... We then hooked up the hose to the to the can. Cut out to fit over my shoulders and put... Uh, your water hose around the edges so you wouldn't cut yourself. And because it was so light, we put sandbags on top of the head. <laughs> you just didn't bend over any. Hmm. And they were very tolerant at, at the swimming pool. That's amazing. Nowadays, they they probably run you off as terrorists. Well, you, you got to remember, that's, you know, it's military. And they didn't really, have, you know, we never got any hassle from it. Now, when you say military, were you on the military base? Was that a, yes. a yeah. pool they yeah. had there? Okay. Yep, yep. Fort nice. Jackson, South Carolina. Okay. So when did you finally get a chance to try regular scuba gear? 1968. And that was in uh, Lake Cora, actually. My wife's uncle's son, they used to live out there. He had a tank and a regulator and mask and fend. And that was it. No weight belt, none of that crap. And he said, you want to learn to dive with this? And of course. Yeah. And it's like, license? You don't need no stinking license. And then later, when you did get certified, you said, God, I could have got myself killed. I didn't know that. <laughs> you didn't realize all the things you were doing. Yeah. Now, was there a certification program back then? I think there was for YMCA. Mm-hmm. But again, we didn't have the computer to look up the details on. And you go to the local library, and you weren't going to find anything on scuba. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. So that's how I got started. Now, Jim, how about you? What got you interested? Uh, fire department got called out for a missing person in a lake. And after searching with a drag bar and hooks all night long, about daylight, they brought the divers in and within a half an hour they had found him. And so I thought, well, if I can wear a SCBA in a fire, I ought to be able to wear a scuba regulator and handle breathing underwater. So... I got started as a public safety diver, got certified in New Jersey. Um, interesting when I, when they, on my first seat card where it said dive shop, instead of listing a dive shop, they just said North Atlantic. <laughs> and my instructor said, you show this card to anybody anywhere in the world with a uh, current logbook. And you'll be able to dive just about anywhere in the world. If you can dive the North Atlantic, you can dive anywhere. Our ocean checkout dive was in 60 feet of water on a shipwreck. So my first dive in the ocean was at 60 feet, and it was a shipwreck dive. Nice. I don't think this should be allowed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm get more Not anymore. Giant diving. Yeah. Well, well, for me, it was. I grew up watching Jacques Cousteau. That was. Uh, the only time I got to stay up late was, uh, yeah, Nova Knights and Jacques Cousteau was on. And it was absolutely fascinating watching him underwater, and I always wanted to do it. And my dad was actually a scuba diver. So he had the gear, but he wasn't actively diving 
at an age I can remember. In fact, the first time I saw his gear was when he sold it. At, he was selling it, and it was a tank. And this is a you know early seventies, a tank, and you know maybe he might have had a wetsuit. I, I've I've actually got his dive flag that my grandmother made when he got into the sport. Uh, but I never got a I never got a chance. And I can remember a few times when I was in high school, I had a electronics in, instructor uh, who was doing a lot of diving in Superior and Huron. And I love to hear his stories. And it always seemed like there was something else in the way of it. And then my wife and Jim Kleeman, who was one of the original hosts, uh, his wife, uh, together got us, uh, what we call it, lesson certification uh, to go and do it. And it was one of those things, you know, we really probably didn't have the money at the time to do it, but we went out and, and did it anyway. And then you worked extra and figured out how to do it. And, you know, I can remember renting gear and all sorts of stuff so and that's probably been gosh how many how many years have we been doing the show we're at episode 244 i have to look up i'm so bad with time i'd i'd, I'd forget i forget a lot <laughs> so it's got to be about seven eight years now i've uh, been diving now i didn't have a, a an amazing uh first dive my my first my open water dives we traveled down to goboa and that's where the dive shop did them and then uh, the comment that Jim and I always had is after we got certified, we didn't know anybody else who dove. That we couldn't find anybody. I mean, there were the forums, which were nasty, getting on, listen, you know, people who didn't dive, talking about diving. And uh, we, th- we thought you had the only way to go diving was to go on trips because that's what the dive shop uh, seemed to push. They had a club that wasn't active. Uh, and I don't know why we uh, we knew the we knew about the mud club, but we just didn't get there. And it wasn't until uh, Jim and I got connected with the mud club, went back, got our advanced open water a couple years later that we got diving. And I think <laughs> do you remember Mac when we joined? You were filling out the application, and I think we had six dives. Yeah, I just remember going with Jim when he was just first starting out. I think it was over in Buchanan. Yeah, you did Clear Lake with him, right? And then. You and the guys there at uh, Pawpaw, we yep. spent a good bit of time in Delaney Bay yep. when you just started out. Not, you started out good. You guys didn't get frightened or or uh, intimidated by the weeds and the muck. We didn't know better. We thought that's what it was. <laughs> and as long as you start out that way, you'll be good. Yeah, that's a, and that was one of the things when we took the certification. You know, kind of like Jim saying, if you dive the North Atlantic, you know, they they said when you go down south, you say that you you do a Great Lakes diving and they know that you have to be a a good diver if you do that now there's a lot of people who may say they are but they're not getting in the water but we'll do a we'll do uh i still want to do a podcast or we'll do a video one and we'll talk about the show and some stuff get everybody back together maybe we'll do that as we get closer to 250 uh or later you know how things go i'm still working on the website by the way (laughs) it's coming along but still a a few weeks out it's uh, like, is it is it true that once a diver, always a diver, or should that be true? I mean, I think like anything, you can claim once you've done it that you've done it, but are, I, I think it, you, you need to qualify it because there's like, you know, do, if you go horseback riding and you rode, uh, you know, somebody's pasture horse when you're in 10, does that make you an equestrian? You know, there's, there's plenty of things, you know, motorcycle, skydiver. I mean, you probably see this a lot, Max, skydiving. How many people want well, to do it? You've got, you've got rules that are about recertification and recurrency. Yeah. But how many people, people got licenses? But how many people will go 
and they only want to do it for a bucket list. So they'll oh, go. Yeah, tandems is the big thing now. It's hard to get people to stay in the sport because originally you started out static line. Mm-hmm. And if you lasted five, so you could go free fall. Yeah. You had some time invested and you, you got that camaraderie with other people. And you were more inclined to stay or at least stay for a season or so and get 30 or 40 jumps or you get your A, you get your A license. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you get a e-ticket ride, meaning your, your, your tandem and you're done. Cause you don't, you know, you got 15 minute instruction. You go up in the airplane, you come out, woohoo, wonderful ride. Yeah. But you no, know, you didn't pay anything. You know what I mean? Yeah, you didn't. You didn't have to learn. You didn't have to, do, I mean, with, with static line, you're landing that parachute yourself the first time. So you better listen to me. Right. Yeah. Who, you don't want to break an ankle or so worse. So you had much more invested. And, and when you talked about jumping after five jumps and did your first static line, you did something. And we always say five because you wanted to be airborne. You know, you don't want to be a leg. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no comparison between a airborne and a sport diver. You know what I mean? I mean, night and day. Right. Nobody's shooting at you when you get out of an airplane. You're not carrying 100 pounds of gear. You're not jumping at 400 feet. So, no, I don't want to compare airborne versus sport stuff. And they're both nice. But skydiving I like a lot better. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of those activities. So. You know, at what, you know, maybe there does need to be recertification. Maybe that's curious. What do, you, what, do you, what do you guys think? Do you, Jim? What frequency should you dive every year to maintain your, your currency or your, your, your ability? I guess it depends where you're diving and when you're diving. I mean, it's a lot. Uh, we've talked about it a lot. There's a lot of difference between uh, shallow water, clear water, warm water and cold dark deep and deep is 60 feet yeah well you could say deep is over 30 yeah i mean when it's cold and dark it's totally different i've, I've been at 12 feet and you might as it feels like you're a mile down yeah you know zero visibility limited visibility or zero visibility add a current add some hazards i mean there's there's entanglement it's hard to say yeah well it's like the old saying i did the same dive a hundred times, or I did a hundred dives because each dive was different. Well, there was, uh, you know, we say this, and um, it's probably been a couple of years ago. There's a website that it's probably the last time I logged my dive, but there's a website that had a scoring system. I'll have to look it up because what it does is it takes into account temperature, depth, the location, and had you dove there before. And so a deep dive that was cold. At a new site you hadn't experienced before, it was worth more points than a dive that was shallow, warm, clear visibility, and that was the only spot you ever dove. So you could have somebody with 50 dives who, according to this formula, was more experienced than somebody with 300. And I can see how that could be, because if you do nothing but clean swimming pools, yeah, hundreds of dives. Well, and, and the same thing riding horses, is that if, if you've, taken lessons on one horse whole, your whole life, and I put you on one of my horses, you may l- look like you've never ridden a horse before. Well, to me, it's a lot different if you're going around a circle or you're going to go out there in the back country. Yes. Totally different riding a horse or a mule. Yeah. So uh, a good point. But I, I think in general, my opinion is if you're going to call yourself a diver, you need to be doing 
I would say at least six dives a year, and I'm being generous there. Because that's the difference between being a diver and being scuba obsessed. Scuba obsessed, you're doing 25 plus, and th- some of those people are going to be Mac, <laughs> Mac Quant. How, how many dives do you think you average in a year, Mac? Uh, not as much as I want. <laughs> <laughs> two years ago, I think I actually logged it for two years again just for fun. And that one, I had 127, but that was a good year, considering I'm older. Yeah. And, and that's, and, you know, quantity doesn't necessarily mean quality. Uh, and I think a lot of times when you start talking about instructors and they're logging, you know, 100 dives, you know, that, that's different if you're doing it as a, as a career and recreational. 120 dives is a lot. Well, and, but you figure I'm out there and I have the opportunity, multiple tanks, and I'm doing shallow water grubbing. Yeah. You know, different lake maybe, but mm-hmm. I, I can burn a lot of time there. Yeah. And, it's and then, a, how much time did we spend in the river last year? Oh, my you know, God. We spent a lot of time in the river. We hours. We spent out hours. You know, it was not uncommon to have 45 to an hour's dive or longer. You know, I, I like to go deep on a shipwreck and see some things, but it you just don't get the time that you do when you're doing a nice shallow river dive. A river dive, you can you can – Gosh, there's some days where we started early and then you you, you got home after dark. You know, oh, you, yeah. can, you can stretch the tanks mm-hmm. out for an hour plus each doing shallow. I, I think our guys are pretty smart about what we do because we generally start out, I mean, obviously we dive all year, but before we start doing up north crap, we normally start out shallow on the Havana or the Rockway, which is then 70-something. Then you'll go out there on the Ann Arbor 5, 110, 120. We work our way up. So when we go up north in September, so we're hitting the Cedarville and the Stalker and, you know, all the other ones. We've already tuned up our equipment. We've got used to using our meters, our computers. Around here during the summer, though, it's 20 foot or less. We're in the shallows. We're in current, low vis, but it's different areas. We, we do a little bit of a lot, and I think that keeps us more current well and then and then we're diving all year round yeah i mean i've got to be the worst of the group and you know with other conflicting events taking time away from diving but it's rare to go more than a couple months without getting a dive in and that leads us to the dives this week and i can finally say i i got wet it's been a while it rained all week yeah no but i I think i I went in the water (laughs) i went underwater so what we did. You got a uh, dive in? I got a dive in. Well, tell us about it. <laughs> we, we, we headed up to Lake 16 and that was Mac, Bob Sweeney, Kirk, and myself. And we went to Lake 16 and you could tell it was going to be good. And we had heard rumors that Viz was really good this spring, but you, you look out in the water and you can see all the way to the bottom until the light starts to refract. And glare, so that that lets you know you at least got a good solid five feet right there from the the shore. So let's see, I we you know, I, I dove in my dry suit. Uh, unfortunately, I was overweighted. Uh, I still had my. I knew I was going to be a little bit heavy, but I wasn't sure how much. You know, I've been fighting trying to lose weight, but it seems to have stalled a little bit here in the last month. So I thought. Heck, I'm going to need a lot of this weight to get me down. And I think I was about six pounds heavy. I had, I had new gloves that I had bought at the dive shop and I, I was breaking those in, uh, three fingers. Uh, what would you say water temperature was, Mac? I had, uh, 
we had 64 at the surface, and it was like 38 to 40 yeah. at 75. Yeah, uh, I, I wasn't using my computer, so but I had on uh, using the analog gauge. I had 40 at depth, and I was doing pretty good. Uh, you were out exploring, taking photos and videos, and you got some excellent uh, photos. Uh, I was following Bob and Kurt. But, uh, I had my. I was originally going to use my old obsolete dive light, and Bob lent me one of his backup LEDs. It, it's sad when when a an inexpensive backup LED is better than my dive light, which I probably spent twice as much on it than he did for his little backup. Tell me, I need to upgrade a little bit. But uh, went down um, a little heavy in the dry suit, and this is probably as deep as I have been in the dry suit since I got it. Uh, and I, I being too heavy, it took too much air to give me buoyancy, and then coming up was just not a fun experience. So I called the dive at least at depth and then i played around in the surface till i burned up uh, my my tank a lot of nice fish it was beautiful for fish watching and nature seeing but we we went out and saw a few of the items on the course before i called it uh what do you say i i think viz was maybe 25 feet would you say 25 to 30 25 to 30 yeah in the in the photos it looked greener than it seemed to be in real life Right, I don't have a filter or corrector filter on that one. Yeah, I, I I need to Photoshop some of them and see if I can pull some of that green off. But you had some really nice contrast in those photos. You know, the stop sign, uh, the boat. And well, then, I don't have any flash or anything. Mm-hmm. It's all ambient light. Yeah, it's amazing. Now, is that your GoPro? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is nice. I'm going to have to get one. So that was good. Only one dive. I brought two tanks, but everybody was seemed to be not interested in getting a second one in but that was a nice you talk about starting slow you know i consider this my first non-ice river dive of the season uh and this is normally how i how it goes i'm usually overweighted and i gotta peel back so i'm gonna remove six pounds and that should get me pretty good i might remove a little bit more and add a few clip-ons but it's talk it sounds like this next weekend that they'll be diving out in the big lake if the weather holds out that's what i hear well, the nice thing about Lake 16 is how many people we ran into. There were divers everywhere. I mean, there had to have been another eight, ten divers out there at Lake 16. And then yeah, I've, we actually met people who uh, had heard your podcast. Yes. Mac's always running into people. I never run into people who hear, hear the show other than online. But he said, yeah, he listened to the podcast. Uh, it was Jonathan from the dive shop. And I got his business card upstairs. I didn't bring it down. So we'll have to do a shout out next week to where I can give him credit in his in the dive shop. But they were from Grand Haven. Uh, he was an instructor, and then he had uh, a student with him. But uh, it, g- it gave Bob a, a chance. Bob was trying out his his uh, new uh, electric undergarments. For those of you who might not know, Bob is our uh, technical diver, rebreather diver, collector of all gadgets, and he had had quite a few gadgets I don't remember him having before. Like he had the heads up display for his rebreather. I think that's new since I dove with them last. Yeah. So he's got a Sherwood with a heads-up display. Uh, he had the the canister with the electric undergarments. The uh, it's kind of like a motorcycle. I guess he only had the the chest and gloves. Gloves was all he was using, and he said he was toasty warm. So so, what are your thoughts about the dive? Uh, it was a real good time. I I have realized that when you startle a big turtle and he goes away, you cannot catch him because he's a lot better swimmer than you are. <laughs> I couldn't get close enough to get a good video of them. Uh, visibility was very good. 
you can get into deco down there really quick if you just start playing around following the path and hitting all the different wrecks. Oh, yes. If you're not paying attention to your air and your time. Uh, you guys actually stayed off the bottom pretty good, being that you were a little heavy. Mm-hmm. And if you looked at some of the pictures, you didn't even have a clue I was there. No, I did not have a clue until I mean, you, you grabbed my fin. <laughs> yeah, and you turned around and you still didn't see me. I, I could kind of see you in the shape, but I w- didn't want to let uh, Kirk and Bob out of my sight since I was pairing up with them. Yeah, yeah but uh, yeah, I, I intentionally tried to stay off the bottom, and that was my concern was just you know, staying off the bottom and being overweighted. I, I felt like I had to put too much air. I was I, – I, I like to put the least amount of air into my dry suit as I need. And that's that's, the, way, that's the way it should be. Yeah. And I just felt like I had too much, air, a little too much air in my dry suit and then the, too much air in, the, in my BC. But that's, you know, that's what these dives are for. And that's what the nice controlled location we've been to many times. You know, there's a platform. Yeah. Everybody stayed off the platform. Everybody stayed out of the cage and nobody hit the chains. Yes. And that's why the visibility stayed good, even because the other guys who were there before us, they were deep. Yeah. And you couldn't tell where they'd been. No, I have that's to say that was, us. yep. And then the, the the new diver, I think they went in after we did, didn't they? Right. And then they had another group after we finished our BS session. Mm-hmm. Two more guys went in. Yeah. Uh, and that's, it's easy to muck it up because kind of how it is here at, at Lake 16 is you got a boat ramp. And then it, there's like a little deep pocket there by the boat ramp, maybe where it gets to be 16, 18 feet deep. And then it comes up shallow where it's maybe two or three feet deep. And you end up pushing, walking on the shallows. I know I did uh, to get, because what then you do is you swim out to about where the platform is. And you could see the platform from the surface. That's when you know you're going to have a nice high-vis dive. Uh, but it didn't seem like we had silt that was suspended. No, it was it was really good. And even deep, it was clean. If you had the light, I mean, I could see Bob and his son. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, son, a long way off. So I kept track of you guys just looking at him. Yeah, he, that that light he's gotten. Kirk's isn't too bad either. And I had my little tiny LED that uh, it was, it was enough to dive with. And I could spot you easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that adds a lot. That's nice when you're diving and you have a light. It just uh, makes you easier to to see. So it was a nice dive. It's. Uh, I don't want to dive like 16 every weekend, but a good checkout warm-up dive for the season, and I am ready. Uh, now, Jim, did you get? were you able to get in the water this last week? Um, not diving, but I spent about three hours in my dry suit on Saturday uh, doing some pier work. So when you say pier work, you're just like construction-ish? Uh, yeah, we were the junior foundation down by the Yacht Club where they teach kids how to sail. We're putting new skirt boards. We're adding skirt boards to the pier to keep the boats from getting up under the docks. And so I was under the piers, driving bolts and screwing on nuts while the guys were sitting in boats on the other side of the boards, on the outside of the piers. Ah. So no scuba, but time in the water. Yeah, you get some time, get to play in the water. It's nice. Now, I did. I, I had my tank in for hydro. And I got that back, so that was nice. Uh, so I've got all, now now it's just up to upgrading gear. So I've got all my basic gear for the season. Well, if you're looking for some doubles, we just found a bunch of seventy twos and got them hydroed. Oh, I saw that. Those, they have, I I like the idea of double seventy twos. 
And I need to bug Jim this weekend. Maybe he might be looking for 72s as well. Well, I know Mr. Curtis got out on fast dives. Mm-hmm. Uh, visibility out there in Gull and a few other ones out there have been pretty good. So whatever is happening to the vegetation and the algae blooms seem to be retarded at this particular point. People are having decent vis. Uh, a lot of the shallower lakes are definitely almost bathwater. And if you look at the number of kids that are out there, kids are a little crazy, but you've got to be in the high 60s anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're, with the water being clear, the sun's getting deeper into the water. Uh, I don't think we've had the the rainy spring, so we're not getting a lot of runoff. And Not, not in the inlands, but I posted some items. I was down in Niles again today, and I put pictures of the ma- of the major three items we go down there at Merrimont. Yes. Your visibility was about a foot if you were lucky, but the current's pretty fast. The one uptown on, uh, at the park, you know, the pipe that we've been using to get out? Yeah. Uh, that's underwater. Oh. And the current on top is ripping by it. Yeah. Cool. And it was, it was definitely brown. There was no visibility in that area. And what above, day was this? Today. I just. Today. Oh, today. Yeah. Then if you went above the dam, uh, I had, Maybe a foot visibility there, but again, if you got away from the shoreline, you could be going down the dam and over it. Wow. So I wound up over at uh, Pleasant Lake. I don't know if you guys ever been there. At, uh, by Lindbergh Park in Edwardsburg. And that was, it's a no glove, no hood dive. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, what I did learn, I did find a, a sunken boat that may require some additional go back and take a look. Uh, the bow was up. Looks like a steel boat looked in decent shape, maybe two feet down from the the tip. I'm starting to, you know, the, got my hand on the gunnel going down. You know how you look for the oil locks, look for tackle, look for the motor. Uh-huh. And I'm still got my hand on it straight out, and I've already got my head in the silt. So that boat must be at a 30, 45-degree angle. Oh. Yeah. Talk about silt. That place is something else. Forget the, the four-foot prod. It ain't going to help you out. But around shoreline, uh, especially where the park is, where they're swimming, mm-hmm. very nice hard pack. Uh, the weeds are a little higher than I had seen anywhere else. We're starting to get some algae blooms out there. Max depth I was at is maybe 30 feet. And one, I, I got some video. I haven't uh, processed it yet. But in, let's say, uh, a square meter, about I had 150 snails. Wow. Mm. I've never seen them that prolific anywhere huh. but uh, it was a good dive and i did meet some interesting people today cass county office of the sheriff <laughs> uh-oh oh. uh, what are you doing here what's son? Clint there was, was officer al struck he was <laughs> a diver he oh. was reeling on by saw the knife flag and says Whoop, i'll go see what's going on oh good good so it was a friendly yes it was a friendly visit okay so he came over and we talked because he was on the dive team himself it's one of those, uh, we got talking about who's using what kind of gear, and uh, he's envious of people who have money to spend, meaning... Hello? I'm still here. Still there, Mac? I'm still here. Can you hear me? We lost her for a minute. Yeah, you just, oh. like, cut completely out. So you said he was uh, saving up to buy dive gear. <laughs> I told him to get back in the dive, and so I gave him some club cards. Oh, okay. And then uh, while I was in Niles... Uh, I don't know if you've been keeping up with the archaeological digs at Fort St. Joseph. Not at all. Well, it's in the news again. Uh, they're actually doing their work there. They've been doing there about a month now. 
And they've got a set of programs that started um, June the 3rd at the library there in Niles. And they got, I think it's one a, one a week. And I published the, the numbers on Facebook. Because uh, I was there and I talked to the, uh, I was the uh, professor of anthropology, Mr. Michael Nassini. And uh, we talked a little bit. And I put some pictures there of what they're doing at this particular point. And uh, those people are hardcore. Archaeologists? or Yes, archaeologists. And there's uh, going to be some time that you can go there and, and go through there where they're doing their dig. Not right now, but I posted the dates and times for that on the pictures. So they had a lecture series, so you can go to that and take a look at some of the pictures. And then they've got the... Um, where they got the artifact recovery and forensic sifting screens. That's set up. That's pretty interesting. And the open house for this area is going to be June 27th and 28th from 9 o'clock to 3 p.m. So it's interesting to see how they're really doing the field work. Mm -hmm. And might be worthwhile to go out there and take an eyeball. Yeah, I, I've. Uh, it's been a long time since I've done any of that field work. I did it in uh, middle school, I think I went out. And we, uh, at the Nature Center, they had some digs and helped out with... Uh, now, any talk about doing any underwater work? I, I had mentioned that to them, and we got into comparing, well, talking about maps. Because mm -hmm. uh, you can't talk about the fort if you don't talk about the Indian reservations. Right. And uh, I, I shared some of information I got from a couple of Indian maps, and then he, he dropped me a couple of hints where they had uh, found some stuff on Indian maps. And the, the lay of the river is totally different than it is now. Oh, yeah. And people don't realize that. And they have actually done underwater soundings out there in that weed bed, which is like way steep to chest high and mucky. Yeah. And the way they did it is they, when the river froze over, they went over and made holes in the ice. Okay. And then they did their sonar checks in that way. That way it was reduced on the um, vegetation interference. Okay. And you got a better picture. And they have actually used ground penetrating radar out there, which is quite interesting. I'd like to have some of that stuff to play with. Yes. You and me both. And it would be fun to adapt one to water work, too. Yes, it would. So I enjoyed it. It was very, you know, it was nice of him to come over. I did I did not intrude on where they were at. He came over and spoke to me because I was going to tell you any problem with coming down and doing any pictures. He said they'd prefer not now because they were not set up for, for guests. Mm -hmm. So the pictures I took, I had my good camera with me. Okay. But it's, it's worth it if you've never done that. And if you've never been to Niles and check out their library, They've got the reports for the last dozen years on their excavation. It's really good to look at the artifact pictures because stuff that we're finding way downstream is surprisingly like what they're finding there. And you would think it's junk if you didn't look at what they had found. Yeah, that, that's a good point. It's very worthwhile. Because I think like the, the spot in the river where you know you've picked it over really well and then you come back a week later and it seems like it's all brand new, that's coming from somewhere. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, if you want to listen to us, make sure you keep subscribed on iTunes. We're also on WRVO Radio, uh, RenoViolaOutdoors.com. Listen to us and other outdoor programs every week. Uh, Jim, you got anything to plug? No, not this week. Not this week. How about you, Mac? Yeah. I was going to say, any outstanding sales or anything there at the uh at the, the Wolves? Well, up? just those. Actually, we do have a couple. I just got uh, two Poseidon regulators back from being serviced with Octopus. They're ready to go. And we've got uh, 
Those steel 72s just came back from Hydro, and we finished tumbling those. So they're ready to go if anybody wants to double them up. And if anyone's looking for a women's dry suit, we can make a deal on eBay. Excellent. We've got a bunch of women's dry or I'm sorry, wetsuits, women's wetsuits on eBay. Not dry suits, wetsuits. Excellent. Well, I've got, uh, I, I think I may be getting my son into diving here pretty soon. So uh, he's got a, a clear bill of health from the doctor, which had been holding us up. So maybe here towards the end of the, the year, we'll get him started in some basic introduction into diving. Good. Keep him shallow and warm and he'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah, you can give him a good experience, and everything will be okay. Um, let's see. As I'm trying, it seems like there should be something more to talk about, but uh, we do have some guests coming up. Probably going to be we're going to be doing some recordings. Uh, they'll be pre-recorded, and uh, you will absolutely enjoy them. So we'll we'll start teasing that now. Next week, we'll uh, hopefully we'll be able to tell you who it is, so we can start uh, building up a little bit of suspense. But look for that in a couple weeks. Can we say anything about the uh, the guest's occupation? I think we could we could hint. Uh, but the, of the we've we've got one guest verified and the others a maybe. But the the first one is a is a writer. So when if we told you the book, you'd definitely know it if you've been following diving for any amount of time. So we'll we'll leave it at that. Um, okay, I think we're to that time of the show. That time of the show? Yes. Okay. So you've been warned. And I want to thank everybody in the chat room again, Dave, for hanging out the whole time, uh, keeping everybody entertained. And he's he keeps up in the show notes better than I do and lets me know in the audio. And I've, I've, I've kept looking. We haven't, we haven't ignored Dave. So thank you for being in there. And thanks for all the guests who come and listen and the fans. And we're going to be doing some redesigning and got some exciting things coming up. Uh, but for now, here's the joke. And I don't know if that's an incentive or a curse, but... After a short scuba dive at a local lake, I returned to the parking lot and found a local cop writing a parking ticket. I rushed up to him and said, hey, come on, buddy. How about giving a guy a break? Do you have something against scuba divers? He ignored me and continued writing a ticket. I told him I thought that only a pencil neck dick, heated meter made reject, would do something so low. He glared at me and started writing another ticket for worn tires. I asked him if he wrote tickets all day because he was banned from hanging out at the donut shop and he whipped out a third ticket. I asked him if it was true that Barney Fife had more brains and was allowed to carry more bullets than he did. And he just shook his head and smiled. He says, you're going to wish you kept your mouth shut. And he smiled. The more I insulted him, the more tickets he wrote. He went out until he had placed five tickets in the windshield and couldn't find anything more to write up. And then he was all finished. He looked at me in the eye and said, you have a nice day, sir. He turned around and walked away. After he got in the car and drove away, I walked over to the other side of the parking lot, took off my gear and put it in the back of my truck. I really feel sorry for that poor sucker who got all those tickets, but maybe next time he won't strip the bottom so much. You're bad. You're bad. <laughs> wow. That's what you call a buddy. Yeah. Now, that did not happen at Lake 16. Everybody at Lake 16 was fine. To my knowledge, there were no tickets issued. <laughs> and the Viz was fine. But maybe this should be a warning. Uh, this should be a warning. So until next week, go out and get wet. And stay safe. And decide if you're a frog or not.
I know Max. Our recording has been completed. I almost couldn't remember my closing line. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't remember if it was get wet, be safe, or eat frog legs. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a member of the horny toad chapter of the Frogs of America.